0: Welcome to the Sports Business Strategy Podcast. I'm Will Item. I'm Mona Lawalia.
1: And I'm Brittany Ramos.
0: And it is Women's History Month. Happy Women's History Month, everybody. Pew, 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 pew. No, you have like, like, like the lasers? Can we can we add that in, Will? Yeah. We, we can add lasers. Brittany, what sound effect would you like for Women's History Month?
1: Oh yeah, I think the lasers like add definitely a, a good vibe. <laughs>
0: This is an exciting month. I know it's been a, you know, a US month of recognition, but I feel like in the last couple of years, it's really taken a a strong direction uh, in sports, Uh, whether it's women belong in sports. There are a handful of sessions on the clubhouse this month of women creatives, women in sponsorship doing sessions as well too.
1: It's so exciting. I mean, I was a little girl who used to fight her dad for the sports page in the morning. I played sports my entire life and you know I always felt such a deep connection to, to sports in general and then you know getting a chance to to be in this industry at a young age. You know, I started my internships at 19 years old, and I've been in professional sports ever since. And looking at how the industry has changed for women is so exciting. I see just more and more female leaders females and, and really exciting roles. Well, you know, just speaking from a football side, you know, we have women not only on business operations now, but women on, on the football operation sides and, and other sports who are now coaches, who are referees, who are players. And I, I think it's just so inspiring. And, and to your point, I feel like in the last couple of years just seeing so many great stories of, of women really making strides in this industry has been so inspiring and it just makes it feel like you know again as I mentioned starting off in this industry at 19 years old and kind of creating my own path has been you know hopefully inspiring other young girls along the way and um, really making you know making it known that women do belong in sports and whether it's on the business side, you know, playing the sports themselves, being on the coach's side, um, there's unlimited opportunities, and I, I'm really just excited about where we are now and where we're growing towards the future.
2: Absolutely, I think I think representation and diversity is extremely important, um, both gender and ethnicity. I think you know the sports industry has made a concerted effort to kind of shift back to where it should be, um, uh, or where it's supposed to be. I guess is probably a better way to say that. And so it is really exciting to see all these great new things with Angel City FC coming along with a great women ownership group and then also some of the great things they're doing. Um, it's really exciting to be in the sports industry at right, at right now at this time and see so much development um, for women in sports. So it's very exciting.
1: Yeah. And I think you even look at, I feel like even over the past couple of years, like the WNBA just continuing to grow and, you know, having just women's soccer and the, the women's national team and and all the, fe- the incredible females that are on that team who have done awesome things in the community and, um, you know, with youth uh, soccer and female soccer. And again, the list can go on and on. And you look at you know, Sarah Fuller, who is, you know, playing college football and, you know, all these things that didn't seem like they could be real and happen. And even from, you know, to your point with the Angel City FC and their ownership group, it's just really inspiring and exciting, um, not only for, you know, just females, but even, you know, males as well who are, who are, you know, support, um, you know, females in sports. And I, I think that, for female sports specifically, it's exciting to see how that's growing as well. I think there's a lot of still work to do on, you know, especially, uh, you know, I think that female soccer and especially like with Angel, F- Angel City FC is doing a really great job right now with, you know, putting the attention on, on women's sports and,
2: and to be honest
1: to women's sports, right? They're not only just being an advocate for women's soccer, but I feel like just women's sports in general, like, and all their ownership group, you know, Serena, I believe is, is part of the the ownership group there, and obviously being in tennis and just this kind of movement is just really exciting. Um, and even from a sponsorship perspective, right? You know, I feel like there's just obviously from sponsors, it's been you know, very geared towards male type of sports, but I even think from a sponsorship perspective, you're seeing a lot of brands really supporting women's sports and supporting female athletes and really, you know, creating this movement alongside of them, which I also think is a really crucial and, and pivotal moment um on the sponsorship side as well.
0: I'd agree. I mean I I don't know how this sounds when I say it, but just the whether it be credibility or the, the ones with privilege stepping up and recognizing that they have a responsibility. You know, when we talk about, uh, the WNBA movement, uh, as of late, it is certainly I, I would think helped by the NBA players accepting their responsibility and stepping up. I know that they've been supporting the WNBA for years and years and years, but actually, you know, wearing the orange hoodies and speaking out when being interviewed and talking in support of, yo, these these women are way better than you are at home. So <laughs> shut up right now. Like, I, I'm glad to see that they are taking the responsibility of the the, the microphone that they have in front of them to help elevate. Uh, women's sports as well too and so that's that's really encouraging to see that it's not just women fighting on their own in sports to have a place but there are then uh allies who have a uh, influence uh, taking advantage of that as well too
1: absolutely and i think you know you've seen a lot with even again kind of going to the brand perspective of a lot of brands coming on board um, and also brands who are who are really helping with the narrative, right? You saw some brands, especially around women's soccer, who again, I think have done an incredible job in, in this movement and in supporting female athletes. And you see brands who are, who are subsidizing for their compensation to make sure that their pay is equal as their male counterparts. You know, you see sponsors coming in and really supporting the cause and not only just obviously being able to align with these incredible women and and these teams, but also supporting, you know, things that are really going on still and with female and sports, right. With different subjects and so forth. So I think, you know, when we look at sponsorship and business and we look at, you know, I think cause marketing and Mm -hmm. I I hope, and I, I feel like genuinely brands are doing it from a genuine place but you see a lot more of this kind of cause marketing movement, I feel like in sponsoring female sports. And I, I think it's, you know, I don't look at it as an authentic, but I, I really do feel like people genuinely are, are wanting to continue to, to support a lot of these things that are, are still we're still unfortunately seeing in, in 2021.
0: Well, there's plenty of things that are happening in sports right now that we could talk about, whether it's sponsorship deals or, uh, you know, Lake Tahoe games. But I feel like none of that will carry as much weight as this conversation on Women's History Month. Support women in sports. Mm-hmm. Women belong in sports. Uh, and with that, we should probably just get to our interview, which is with an amazing woman who works in sports. Armand, who do we have coming up? Yeah,
2: we're fortunate today to have as a guest Katrina Palanca from Twitch. So incredible story. Again, a lot of education, right? I mean, I think you know it's fair to say that really none of us were esports uh, experts or aficionados, but I feel like we're already kind of on the step to potentially um, getting in that in that wavelength with uh, some of the insights she provided to us. So really great interview, great insight. You don't want to miss this one. Uh, I took a lot of great notes away from from this interview. We are really excited here. We have something new and interesting today. We have uh, Katrina Polanka from Twitch uh, today. So Katrina, thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited to have you here.
3: I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Well, as as we always start off with all of our guests, we like to kind of ask if you can give us a quick kind of background to how you got to where you are today.
3: Sure. Um, My first job ever was uh, as an ice cream scooper at Haagen-Dazs, but I know that that's not the premise of this question, so I'm gonna move on and say that the start of my career was really as a journalist and I'm a writer at heart. So I ran the communication circuit at the beginning um moved from journalism to PR because I figured if I ever want to have a family, um, the hours and the pay that journalists provide, and bless them for their work, but it would be really hard to start a family, and I was thinking of that pretty early, so I jumped to PR where I could still write, um, but the hours were a little better, and the pay was a little better. From there, I cold-called um, the hiring manager at the Brooklyn Nets for a coordinator role in global marketing solutions and thus started my journey in sponsorships. Um, I was in at the Nets for a little more than three years um, before moving to Twitch, where I am now.
2: That, that's great. And uh, no, I appreciate the uh, the dazs and the, the start from the beginning. So thank you for that. Given that the esports is a growing industry, right? I think it might be helpful for us to kind of touch on the education of esports and kind of maybe could you explain to our listeners what you do specifically at Twitch, knowing that you guys have multiple different entities that you guys are running, i.e., Twitch Rivals. Maybe we could talk about that later. But do give us a quick crash course on where you guys fit in the esports space?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, Um, My role is to create, develop, and execute multi-dynamic sponsorship programs for our official marketing partners. Um, We call ourselves Twitch Properties. Um, So this happened in the past year or so. We stopped calling ourselves the sponsorship group because sponsorships can mean different things to different people. And so we rebranded our group to be Twitch Properties. We have 16 total in our portfolio. Five of them are owned and operated, which means that we have teams internally from production to original content to events who produce these first-party owned and operated properties, Twitch Rivals, TwitchCon, which is our annual event, things like that. Um, But we also have a huge third-party property business, where we represent, we are essentially a sales agent for third-party properties. It started out in esports, and that was a natural fit, right? Like where Twitch was a few years ago, um, we were signing unprecedented contracts, content contracts with esports teams so that we could get full organizations in whole to stream exclusively on Twitch. That turned into, you know... How can we better be of service to those teams? And so you, like, if you think about like the genesis of esports, right? a lot of it was a bunch of friends living in a house who loved a game. And this industry found them, right? Like, so now you have these gamers who are finding that people want to watch this content. The internet makes it possible. Twitch makes it possible to live stream. They're finding these communities outside of their own cities. And so these gamers are being pushed into business roles. So you'll have COOs, CEOs, CFOs who were gamers at heart, and now they're being pushed to, to the limit, essentially, of what they can do. They're getting all of this attention and there's a fork in the road. They have to choose between whether they continue doing what they love doing, which is building championship rosters, continuing to be involved in the operation side of gaming, Or do they want to handle the business side? And Twitch comes in and says, hey, you can keep doing what you love doing. It's what you're good at. It's what you're here for. Let us handle the business side. We're already in conversations and in rooms with brands because we're such a big media company. If we represent you, we can handle you in the same way. And you can be part of these conversations. And so it started organically with esports teams. And soon that grew into gaming conventions like PAX Arena, Evo, um, which are some of the biggest live events in gaming that we also represent. And in the last year with the pandemic, it's grown to include music franchises like Rolling Stone, which announced last week that they're going to be streaming on Twitch for two years every single day, no break, as in like, there's probably a show happening right now. There was. Um, we represent them and even sports franchises. Uh, the National Women's Hockey League is one that we have a content deal with, so we represent them too, um, and a couple of others. So those are kind of our four verticals: esports, gaming, music,
1: and sports. Coming off of that, as Armand said, that was an incredible education session, and just honestly, there's just it seems like there's just there is a lot of pieces. Now, when it comes to your role specifically. Walk us through kind of, the, kind of the day-to-day or even just kind of where your focuses are right now? Because again, it seems like there's so much exciting things going on, but how are you involved in that from a day-to-day perspective and just kind of roles and responsibilities?
3: So from, I'm going to start with my title is dual strategy and operations. Um, I'm going to break those two apart. On the strategy side, I'm responsible for maintaining our premium portfolio. And to be honest with you, in the last when I first started at Twitch in september twenty eighteen we were taking whatever we could get right like if if a property were to come to us and say, "Hey, can you represent us?" we would take it, and like we would like make that buck whatever we could yeah. these days, with the growth of Twitch, even just in the last two and a half years, we're trying to be a lot more selective about where we put those resources so Uh, We cleaned house this year. Um, We scaled down from 27 um, to 16 total properties. And we're going to try to scale down even further. We want to do fewer, bigger, better deals. So it's my responsibility to vet the properties and make sure we're doing the right things, not just on the third property, third party property side, but also on the first party property side. So I'm going... It's almost easier on the third-party property side because I can straight up ask questions on the properties um, from their activation team, the infrastructure that they have, and we run them through a scorecard to determine whether there's enough value there for us to devote resources to. On the first-party property side, owned and operated, it's a little harder because I'm having to go cross-functionally to marketing, social, production, content to see is your idea like legit? Like, do you have marketing budget against it? How much of this would I have to, would my sponsor have to pay for if I were to bring a sponsor onto this? How much viewership do you expect? All of the things and what you find at Switch is we're always setting precedence. Every time we go and do something, we're doing it for the first time because we're so new. And that becomes like the hardest part. So Once I've identified that a property is like good to go, yes, we're going to have this event in October. Let's start packaging it. I then go and say, okay, these are this is what the sponsorship integrations could be. These are the five categories we're going to go target at these rates. And I go work with finance to put together a financial model on the impressions versus how much we're going to be able to make off of it. This is the total value of this platform. Let's call it We can make $10 million off of this event. And we work backwards from that. Um, That's the strategy side. Then I work with sales marketing to get the deck done. It goes to market. We launch. um, And I make sure that all of the pieces are in place. The activation team knows it's coming. The account manager knows that it's coming. Media is getting the media set up. The deck is being built. It's going to the sellers. And from there, my job is almost done. Now we go into operations. So that was just strategy. When operations comes in, um, that's the seller coming back with questions, right? No brand is buying it on the first try. So they'll say, this is cool, but what can I own? Okay, now we need to figure out what their RFP has. And Verizon is a really good example of that. Um, We had a pre-packaged template for what a rival's official marketing partner would get. But they came back to us and said, like, we want to win gamers. We have 5G coming out. How are we going to win gamers? And um, we came up with a custom program for them, which we had to pivot due to COVID, but it ended up being really cool. We did a mobile gaming tournament in the Paramount Studios lot, along with Rivals, and we had a few celebrities there, a few mobile gamers, and they were all using Verizon phones attached to to the network. Um, the set was fully branded and and all of that. So we we gave them the works. Um, but it's my job to come up with like what is that concept that'll really hit on that objective, and then it goes you know round round back and forth to the seller. It sells through, and then I hand it off. That's on first party. On the third party property side my team oversees the activation too. So, Oh my goodness. <laughs> so on the third party side, I almost never let it go. It like stays with our, my team from pitch to activation. Um, luckily, I'm not the one like actually on the ground. Each team is part of our, you know, scorecard process and evaluating the property. I measure them on how good their activation team is. Like if you're telling me we can sell this and you're telling me you have two people on your activation team you're lying <laughs> so um yeah so that's that's where we oversee that part and we're sitting on weekly client calls on the activation side doing wrap reports working with our measurement team to get um quarterly we call them QBRs quarterly business reports back um and working that working that through to to renewal
0: My question goes back a couple of minutes ago. Uh, This is not only for our listeners, but it's also for myself, who is admittedly very green and naive with the complexities of Twitch and the work that it does on a sponsorship or now rebranded properties side of things, where you mentioned there are both the third party properties that you help manage and the first party properties. Can you give an example of, you know, one of each of those and how they might differ from each other as far as how your work goes?
3: Absolutely. At the at the top, I would say that we think of everything in four major verticals: esports, gaming, music, and sports. Um, within those, you'll have first-party and third-party properties. A first-party property is defined as anything that Twitch owns and operates. So examples include Twitch Rivals, which is our owned and operated. I don't want to call it eSports. It's neither eSports nor gaming. I actually started with the exception.
0: (laughs) You have a question, yes, about Twitch Rivals because I watched this before our interview and I'm watching two people play chess with each other. So it sounds like it's everything.
3: Yes, it is. um, It's like the WWE. So that's the one thing that people don't really understand. Well, it took me a long time coming from sports to understand this concept. There's eSports, then there's gaming. A lot of people look at Twitch and they say, I want esports, like Twitch gives me esports. Not everything on Twitch is esports. In fact, a fraction of what's on Twitch is esports. If you think about I'm a basketball girl, so I'm gonna go with this one. LeBron James and the Harlem Globetrotters. LeBron James is esports. The Harlem Globetrotters is gaming. They're both playing basketball, but one is playing basketball to compete and one's playing basketball to entertain. The same with an Olympic wrestler and the WWE. One's playing, they're, they're both wrestling. Same sport. One is competing, one is entertaining. In our world, there's esports like Riots League of Legends Championship Series. That's true esports. They're playing League of Legends to compete. But if you watch Twitch Rivals, they'll also do a League of Legends series. They're playing League of Legends to entertain. And those are two different people. Even like the type of person that's in front of the camera is very different. A lot of your, I'm not saying they're all like this, but a lot a lot of your esports athletes aren't going to want to be in front of a camera. Like they want to win. They want to practice. They're focused. They're, they don't care if you're entertained by their gameplay. In fact, you watch their entire stream, they're probably quiet the whole time, but you're watching because they're good. An entertainer is different. So a gamer is someone like a ninja. Like, he didn't even make, he didn't even qualify for the Fortnite World Cup, which was the biggest Fortnite event July 2019 at Arthur Ashe. He didn't qualify, but everyone knows who Ninja is, and everyone knows Ninja plays Fortnite. Is he good at Fortnite? Like, he's decent, but not to the level that he can compete. And that's the difference between esports and gaming. So Rivals is the WWE. Um, So we create that. We have a production team, a content team, the marketing team built that logo, all owned and operated functions internally. Um, Then we have third party properties, which exist completely outside of Twitch. So Team Liquid is the number one esports team in the world in terms of prize money won players that they represent um, and global reach we represent them. So we sell all of your traditional team assets, um, jersey patch, branding of the facilities, branded content, like social media branded content, everything that like you wouldn't even know Twitch is behind the scenes selling for them as their sales agent. It's truly like a CAA relationship with the third party properties.
0: I don't know if when you were explaining that you were thinking how simple this is to understand and you were just going through the motions. But for me, that went, Oh, okay. I'm on board now. So thank you. That's good. Super helpful.
3: Yeah. It took me, you don't even, I'm acting like I knew all this, (laughs) but it took me three months to learn that and I put it in in sports terms because that's what I understand. (laughs) You know,
1: understanding you have a ton of responsibilities and, you know, just coming from, the sports side or the esports side, how is your department structured correctly?
3: Yeah. So, um, we're lean and mean right now. We have, um, the head of the sponsorships group, Lou Garati came from NASCAR, um, is the, he's at the helm. And then we have essentially three types of roles. So we have sellers, um, and that's divided geographically so they each have a territory, which is actually unique. I feel like, I don't know if it's like that everywhere, but at the Nets, you like drafted brands.
0: Brands, categories, yeah.
3: Yeah, you don't do that. You, you It's by territory, so it depends on like where the brand is located. So it's like northeast, west, you're regionally divided, which tends to f- work. Like there, there are a lot of categories concentrated in specific areas, so it like QSRs tend to be in a certain place. Autos tend to be in a certain place. It's a little different though. So you have sellers, you have my team, strategy and operations. And then you have a team called sponsor programs, which is intended to be like a a counterpart to the account managers. Another thing that's different at Twitch is that you have two different types of roles. You have a program activation manager and you have a client success manager. The client success manager is the only one that's client facing. Their only job is to be a people person and to, you know, be good at like doing this. The program activation manager is all behind the scenes. So they're operationally strong. I find that to be really unique because in sports, that's normally one role. You have to be a people person and be operationally good. And those two skills aren't always one and the same. Absolutely. And then with your team specifically
1: on strategy, kind of, can you break it down for us as well as just kind of how you guys
3: are structured? Yeah. So, um, currently we're also really lean. Our entire Twitch properties team is only, man, I can count us on one hand, two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine,
0: ten, eleven. 10, 11. How many fingers do you have on one
3: <laughs> <laughs> Um we're like 14 or 15 in Twitch properties and my team is right now, Brittany, hold on to your seat. Okay, we're a team of two. Oh
1: my god. You deserve <sighs> an award. <You> deserve- <laughs>
3: Where I'm about, this is a shameless plug, I'm about to put out a job description for uh, a manager role in London. So if there are any London folks out there, my team's going global, please apply. (laughs) Transitioning into kind of a
1: question that I'm so curious about, because you do have a a traditional kind of sports background coming from on the Brooklyn side, then going over to esports. What really prepared you for this role and also intrigued you to come into this side of the
3: of the industry? The one thing that I think I've taken throughout my career is something I learned in journalism, which is what's the one thing? Like when you're writing an article, like, and as you're doing these podcasts too, right? Like, what's the one thing? And the situational exercise that I put myself through is Imagine that someone just read your article or just listened to this podcast. And then they go out to eat with their friend and they say, you know, I just listened to this podcast or I just read this article and it was about blank. What is the blank? Like what is the one thing that you want them to take away from this, that when they're telling their friends about what they read or what they heard, they're going to go do that. I've taken that with me every single job. And at the Nets, it became, all right, the, the brand marketer that I'm pitching has just read my deck. What is the one thing that they're going to take? They're going to go to their boss and they're going to say, can I, I need you to sign off on $5 million because I want to do this. And like, what's the one thing that they're going to go in there with and say, like, this is worth it because like, this is the idea. If your deck has 10 ideas in it that don't string together with a single narrative and they don't understand it and you're, you're too afraid to tell people that, like, you can save that idea for next time. You want to include every idea that was in that brainstorm. There is no one thing. And the marketer is going to be confused and the idea is not going to feel worth it. So that's something that, like, I've taken from journalism to PR to sponsorships to where I am now.
1: That's awesome. And I one of my favorite scenes in television history is from Mad Men, and I refer to it all the time. It's the carousel scene. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Um, And just, I always tell my team that I want people to feel that way when they get our pitches. Um, Just really feeling that connection, authenticity, that narrative, and I think it's so important. Um, Sorry, I don't want to keep well, and Armand, did you have Oh, no, that? I
0: was just going to say my favorite scene is the lawnmower scene or the zooby <laughs> zooby zoo. Or uh, let's see, what are some other great yeah. Mad Men moments? We could just talk Mad Men this whole time. I'm <laughs> game for that as well, too. It's toasted. That's another good one.
3: It's toasted. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> oh, the lawnmower scene. That was just so... Uh, I just, like, didn't expect it. It came out of nowhere. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Anywho...
3: You talk
1: about Rivals, and we just saw a big announcement about an exciting partnership that just came out. So kind of walk us through this exciting Duncan partnership and kind of, you know, again, kind of your involvement in that process and kind of what what we can expect from it.
3: Yeah, so a really exciting one. (laughs) We love that our colors match. (laughs) The pink and orange and purple made it really easy, the bright palette. Um, they were, I mean, I mean, a great partner, right? Like off the top, they do really cool things. Their merch lines are amazing. Everyone was really hyped up to receive this RFP. And, um, they'd come to us and said, look, like we've done a couple of things here and there with gaming, which is what brands normally do that are starting out. Right. They, they say, I want to test the waters. I don't know it that well. Um, let me do one influencer stream here. Let me do one gaming event here and let me see what works. So they had been doing that for a while and um, they clearly they signed on for a larger partnership. So they were seeing like many success moments in each of the things that they were testing out. Um, But they wanted something long term because in a lot of the test the water scenarios, you're doing one thing and then you're out. So like that stream lasts for four hours and maybe the influencer promotes you for another week or so, but after that, like you're out. Twitch Rivals gives you a long-term play. Um, It's a true sponsorship, at least a year long, and you're really embedding yourself in the community. It shows that you're here to stay. And that was what the RFP wanted. Um, They said, we want to prove to the community that like we're here for the long run. So we built the entire program around that. Um, everyone runs on Duncan. Like that's where we started. What's the one thing? Um, And so we really wanted to engage our fans with how we were going to make this come to life. Um, Their whole program stands on... um, uh, Sorry, something's happened in my computer. Um, Their whole program stands on um, this fan prediction tool, which right now in esports and gaming we have this luxury of being able to brand things that our fans will love which i feel like is the sports angle too right like you you try to start with like let's start with what our fans are going to want and then let's back the brands into those activations right now we don't have a choice like we have to do it that way because our fans like we're we're in day 1 right of like what partnerships look like in esports so we realized that we weren't doing a good enough job of engaging our fans on Rivals and we needed them to be engaged in a four-hour broadcast on a screen within four corners, right? Like no halftime, no t-shirt toss, no being able to get up to go to concessions. Like I need to keep you engaged. So we came up with this fan prediction extension that Duncan would brand. That's their year-long play that would happen, you know, for most of the Twitch Rivals events. And then we are going to do something fun around National Donut Day, which is in June. There is a thing in gaming called speed running. <laughs> and the concept of speed running is that you finish a game as fast as you can. Doesn't matter like how many. So if you're thinking like Mario. Mario Brothers
1: 3. Yes.
3: Exactly. You just finish. So people can do this like super fast and they're like, it's crazy. You're like finishing a whole game. So we're going to do a big speed running event. Everyone runs on Dunkin' around National Donut Day. So that's one of our big things. And we're working on like a co-branded product, potentially tapping into what Dunkin' already is so good at. So those are the, the core elements of the program. We're really excited to have them on board.
2: That's great. No, I I love the uh, the natural integration that it, it kind of brings together and, and what you guys have been able to do there. Excited to see what will come down the road and, and what is yet to come. But one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, Duncan Verizon, these are big name blue chip brands, right? And, you know, even on this uh, podcast, we've had a lot of education for people that are very ingrained in the sports industry, or so we think. Um, but how do you guys start to is education, is trust part of a lot of your pitches with some of these bigger brands? You know, you mentioned, you know, Duncan or some of these brands are doing very kind of dipping their toe in the water. Is that part of your strategy or how have you been able to combat some of the conflictedness or, you know, the stuffiness of some of the older brands?
3: Yeah, so it definitely is, right? Like we don't have the luxury of people just naturally understanding what we do. So whereas in football... Or in basketball, your, your phase one can be a pitch. Our phase one is never a pitch. Our phase one is, a you're getting a snapshot of what our phase one is, right? I have to explain to you what the difference is between esports and gaming and all the ways you can get in and why you shouldn't attach a stigma to gamers. Why, yeah, they might play Call of Duty, but that doesn't mean that they're going to do the unthinkable the next day um and that is always our phase one like getting giving them the lay of the land so much so that we have quite a few courses that people can take we do lunch and learns we do workshops just to provide a non-judgmental zone for people to understand it which i think is like having people from outside of the industry starting to come in like myself and you know my boss from nascar We're not judging you because we were like, we didn't know it either, right? So that's always a huge part of it. And then getting into, you know, the nitty gritty, which is how do I engage this audience? What does a sponsorship look like when you don't have an arena, when you don't sell tickets, when you don't have an activation space, everything happens on a screen. So educating them on how to maximize the value of assets that they can't touch and feel the second part of the challenge after you've gotten over convincing them that this is where they need to
2: be—that's great, and I, I'm sure the education piece is a huge part of it. I feel like gaming culture and esports is is ever adapting and ever changing, and there's new things that it you know weren't a thing five years ago. How do you guys show that value, right? You know, you talked about measurement; it was part of your process. What does that look like? I'm going
0: to add to that and just layer on this question for you, Katrina, too, which is that. Uh, I think the thing that gives me the most anxiety when a salesperson talks about a deal they've got coming up is they're only looking for a one-year deal to start off. And that gives me anxiety because when it comes to proving a partnership, I usually like to lean on the second and third year data to show uh, you know, awareness growing over time, affinity growing over time. So what are the measurements or how are you proving within that year uh, effectiveness? What are those numbers that you're hitting on?
3: We custom design our research program for each of our official marketing partners. So it starts by at the 90% mark, as soon as we think they're going to close, and let's be honest, we're all doing kickoff calls before legal gets their stuff together, we bring in research. And our research team comes in and they've done an amazing job of building a framework for us. So they built a framework that outlines three different types of KPIs. Each of them contains five different metrics within them. Um, And we essentially plot out when we hear from the client exactly what the objectives of the campaign are, we plot it back out to that funnel that ultimately leads down to a sale, which is the hardest thing in a sponsorship. From there, we put together a tailored research program for them, which usually, to your point, will consist of three ways wave one, wave two, wave three to show growth over time. We get hit with the one year too, but we try to extend it over to to two at minimum. But we also understand where the brand is coming from. So if we do get a one year, we will work our hardest to make sure that they come back. Like how do you do a a good enough job that they have to come back? And so that's how a lot of our partnerships start. Uh, We use a combination of, man, I think they're like, 15 or 16 vendors on that list. Um, Social measurement is one piece of it, one of many pieces of it um, that shows, they want to see a mix, right? So we show numbers and social is easy. You and your listeners are probably very aware of that. You're probably more interested in how you measure Twitch. Um, Our standard metric is average concurrent viewers. That means like how many people are watching the stream all at the same time. If you go on Twitch.tv right now, and I can say this because it's probably gonna be true at any hour of the day, your stream on the front page is probably gonna have anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 concurrent viewers. That's a sold out arena. That's one channel. Will, are you looking it up? How many
0: people? I'm trying. Well, uh, this (laughs) would be the new, who's trying to figure out the interface. Right now, Ryan Richards is doing a banging DJ set And uh, (laughs) I'm now finding that the number is 10,638 viewers. 10,638. That's just on the Ryan Richards one. So yeah.
3: So he has 10,600 people watching him all at the same time right now. That means that his max concurrence is probably somewhere in the 15 to 20K range, which means like he topped out at 20,000 people watching him all at the same time. Um, But his average could be in the 10,000 range. And that's one channel. So that's that's half of an arena, about half of a basketball arena.
0: It's about an MLS arena.
3: <laughs> so as we're
1: closing out, it's a really exciting month. Uh, it's Women's History Month. And on uh, March 8th is International Women's Appreciation Day. And so being a female in sports and now going into esports, I'd love to kind of, this is kind of a little bit of a twofold question, but just you know, what you would what advice you would give to young females out there who are, you know, kind of nervous about getting into sports and even, you know, the esports world just being so new in general, but especially from a female perspective. And then just what it means to you
3: to be a female in sports and especially in esports? I love this question. I'm getting like really emotional because I'm so passionate about this issue. My like palms are sweating. (laughs) The first thing I would say is don't be afraid to ask for what you're worth. At the Nets, I told you that I moved from the Nets to Twitch because I saw an opportunity in gaming. That's part of the truth. There was also a single moment that I think like changed my entire career trajectory that is also applicable to men. And I hope this guy's listening. I was like at the office late one night at the Nets, probably, like, 7 p.m., which was standard. Like, I was always, like, working super late. And um, one of my coworkers came up to me. He is a white male, and he said, hey, and he's super cool, right? We had a really good working relationship. He said, hey, I I hope they're paying you well because you work really hard. And I said, yeah, like, I'm happy. Like, I'm hoping to get a promotion this summer, but I'm happy. He said, okay, can I tell you what my girlfriend, who does sim- something similar to what you do at ESPN, can I tell you like how much she makes? She's a senior manager at ESPN Global Marketing Solutions. The same title. He told me the number. It was one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. That was way more than what I was making F And I said, "Whoa, okay." I had never been given a number before, right? Like I had mentors. I had people in my corner and I'd never been given a number, $125,000. Okay. I said, Whoa, like there's no way. So I started applying just to see how much, how much I would get. And uh, one of my first calls, and I'm not going to mention what the company is during my HR call. They, I, I couldn't even like get that number out of me. Right. Like the question is, what is your salary range? And you know, I, I fumbled (laughs) until I said $125,000 and the HR recruiter said, yeah, that's about within the range. And I said, holy crap, I'm underpaid. That's insane. And then I really started applying and I landed at switch and that would not have happened if no one gave me a benchmark. I mean, I would not have had that confidence. I would have probably asked for $10,000 more than what I was making, which wasn't even close to the number that he gave me. And it just shows like the importance of like having allies like that who are willing to give it to you like that and tell you straight up. And I hope to be that person for women out there and, and younger girls out there because we don't talk about salary enough. And we don't talk about the, the wage gap enough in those terms. We talk about it being a problem, but we never talk about like, okay, then what should I be asking for? How did none of my mentors give me that? How did it take a coworker of mine to put that bug in my ear of, I think you're underpaid and this is what you should be asking for. So don't be afraid to, to go out there and, and get what you deserve. Absolutely,
1: and it's, it's so funny that you said that because a similar situation happened to me and it took, I actually, it was one of my male mentors who, or, and, and friends who told me, he said, Brittany, ask for what you think you deserve and do not say anything after. Do not try to explain yourself. Don't chalk yourself out of it. Do not try to undervalue what you are truly worth you say the number and you be quiet. He goes, I know you're going to want to say something. And I know because it's a habit of us as women that we want to, we want to explain ourselves. We want to just make sure, you know, everything's okay. And we don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers or just seem ungrateful. And he said, do not speak after you say that number. And I didn't. And I got that number. And, you know, again, it's just a, it is just something as women that i you know i find that we do and so to exactly to your point like say what you are worth stand up for it and don't don't try to talk yourself out of it because if you truly are doing the work you know that you are worth that and and especially you know from your standpoint understanding even the landscape as well from a, compa- a comparison standpoint like stay firm and, and believe in it and, you know, make sure. And if it's not the right opportunity and they're not going to give you what you deserve, it wasn't meant to be. And, and look at, there is, there are brands out there just like Twitch and just like other, other uh, opportunities people have had where they've, they've gotten what they deserve. So that's awesome. And I, I'm, I really thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Wow. On one of the first podcast interviews I ever had, I told a story of, they asked me about the gender question and about being a woman, woman in sports, and I had never told anybody this story of when I first started in sports. Uh, I mean, I'm five four, which is you know, I guess on the sh- shorter side, um, and you know, I was a, a inside sales at Madison Square Garden and in New York for the first time, and I started wearing high heels because I felt like when I was in a room, especially with older male executives or just clients, that they were just looking down on me. Like I was a little girl, not taking me seriously. And I hated that. I hate that they weren't looking at me eye to eye and really engaging. And, you know, I was trying to establish myself as a a young female executive. And so I thought that, hey, to help that, that I would start wearing four to five inch heels. And actually throughout my career, It kind of just stuck with me as like just a part of who I am because, you know, I wanted my presence to be be felt. Not only did I want my voice to be heard, but I also wanted my presence to be felt. And it puts this feeling in my stomach of like, oh, my God, I can't believe that I had to feel like I had to wear high heels to gain respect from other executives and individuals as a female. And it's funny now because when I don't wear heels, people are like, are you okay? like, did somebody, (laughs) is your dog sick? Like, are you sick? Because it's just become such a, a thing over my career that I felt like I had to do to gain that just respect from a present standpoint And I'm just think, and I think to myself, has a guy ever felt that way? Like that they have to like legitimately change their physical sense of whether it's putting on heels or something to feel like they have to gain respect. And I'm grateful that I feel like the industry has evolved since I started, you know, 10, 11 years ago in the industry. But when I told that story for the first time, I was like, oh my God, that's such a sad thing to say. Because just, you know, how I felt like, especially being a small woman in sports, I had to do to just get people to look me eye to eye, which is, again, just, I'm just glad that I feel like the industry, we have a lot more male allies and a lot more safer environments to, to not feel like we, we have to do those things to, to be respected in any way.
3: Yeah, no, that can go, I mean, in so many it it, it's so true like oh you can even (laughs) like there are so many conversations we have right like Mm -hmm. why do i need to get blowouts and put red lips on yeah like how come they can come in and just wear a baseball cap that's fine even even in like zoom world Mm -hmm. um yeah it's we can go down a whole other rabbit (laughs) hole on like appearance and looking the part <laughs> yeah, but I really do appreciate you
1: sharing that it was I think a lot of people do need to, to hear those things so that was awesome
0: to your point like you were saying at the very beginning like you already saw how disheveled I look right now Armon looks <laughs> awful uh, and you said hey is this going to be recording right now like do I need to worry about how I look and so like your thinking was okay they can look disheveled but I need to make sure that my appearance is good. And that that is kind of like what it's like to be a male where I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. You know, like that thought doesn't go through my head because of the privilege that I have of being a white male. I'm just being like, yeah, no, it'll be fine. Like, I don't care. <laughs> that's what I'm saying.
3: It's also like for minority women too, it's like, we look so young, you know? Like I have to, I feel the same way. Like I have to put on makeup and I wear heels because like, I mean i am young i'm twenty eight and i'm in the room with people who are way older than i am and i I try to hide my age I'm embarrassed about my age like i don't want people to know that i'm twenty eight like why is she twenty eight in the room of forty year old directors? why is she a director like she doesn't like she she doesn't deserve this like she doesn't have enough years of experience, and like when people ask me like i i remove my college graduation year on my resume, I don't want people to know. I don't want them to do the math on how old I am. They should hire me because I have experience, not because I'm... They shouldn't throw my resume in the trash because I'm Absolutely. 28. Okay. So what a special episode this was for us. We
1: learned so much and just had one of the best guests. She is the director. And yes, this is three titles that you're all listening to me say. The director of sponsorship, strategy, and operations, Miss Katrina Polanka. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed
3: having you. Thank you.